Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Joan of Arc. Now let's continue with part two of our story about Joan of Arc. Part of Joan's inaction prior to this expedition was the culmination of the two missions presented to her by her voices. Once these concluded, they had ceased, leaving her without any clear plans or objectives. Suddenly, as she approached Compagna, they returned. Under subsequent examination, she would testify that the voices of St. Catherine and St. Margaret told her continually that she was to be captured in midsummer and she could not avoid this fate. She was not to despair. In captivity, God would aid her. Despite this admonition, she continued to Compagna, the town already under a massive siege organized by the Duke of Burgundy. Once Joan arrived, she engaged in frequent attacks on the Burgundians in the surrounding villages in an attempt to disrupt the siege and keep the town from tighter encirclement. On the 23rd of May, at 8 a.m., she ventured beyond the gates of the town onto the bridge over the Waj River at the head of her army in a doublet or jacket of fine gold cloth, her standard raised high. She aggressively ordered an attack on a Burgundian force commanded by Jean de Luxembourg, a French nobleman allied with the Burgundians. Initially successful, Joan pursued this attack for much of the rest of the day, unaware that a larger force of Burgundians familiar with Joan's always attack mentality were waiting in an ambush. In great numbers, they routed the French column, the rear guard of local archers retreating back across the river bridge and behind the walls of the town. Joan's contingent was quickly surrounded, and she remained, stubbornly retreating to the vicinity of the bridge that led to safety as she fought to save as many men as possible. In the confusing melee, an archer on foot grabbed her cloth jacket and pulled her from her horse onto the ground. In armor, Joan had difficulty remounting her horse, and with the Burgundians virtually stampeding towards the bridge that led directly into Compagna, the local commander, Guillaume de Flavie, ordered that it be raised. Joan and a small group beyond the river were captured. Although contemporary accounts don't mention this, history is ultimately speculated that Guillaume de Flavie deliberately shut the gates, cutting off Joan's escape and precipitating her capture. Whether this was the result of bribery or an even more sinister plot has never been determined. But de Flavie was a rather calculating and ruthless individual, even for the time period. Legally dismissed as the captain and defender of Compagna in 1436 after numerous transgressions, he re-established himself through force. De Flavie would then scheme to marry a rich heiress, barely a teenager. He was 40. After his stepmother died, he imprisoned his stepfather, who quickly died of starvation. Now wealthy, 
He continued to mistreat his wife to the point where she successfully conspired with her lover, a member of the king's bodyguard, to murder de Flavie in March of 1449. Regardless of the circumstances, Joan was now a captive of Jean de Luxembourg, the lord of the territory where Joan was seized. She would remain in his custody for months in Jean's fortified residence at Beaulieu as interested forces schemed to gain control of this unique prisoner. Jean de Luxembourg understood Joan's value and assumed that she would eventually deliver a huge ransom. The only question that remained was who would pay it? He certainly was agreeable to ransoming Joan back to the French, but no offer was ever forthcoming, and it is believed that between de la Tremoille and the indifference of Charles VII, already legitimately crowned and possibly concerned over Joan's hold over the common population, the French hierarchy was content with Joan's predicament. No realistic military effort was ever pursued to rescue Joan, despite such inclinations raised by former comrades like La Hirée and Jean Trell. Other elements of the pro-English hierarchy in Paris had a different perspective. Within days of Joan's capture, one of the official Catholic inquisitors of France had already sent a letter to the Duke of Burgundy demanding that Joan be remanded into the custody of the church for interrogation and examination. Throughout Joan's ascendance, it was always the officially stated perspective of the English and their Burgundian supporters that Joan's exploits were derived from sorcery and witchcraft. As her capture proved that her victories were not the result of some divine intervention, it was now necessary to determine exactly what the source of her power was. Aware of these demands, Jean de Luxembourg had no intention of parting with Joan without compensation. He continually moved her among various residences, only his wife and aunt knowing of her whereabouts as her constant chaperones. Ultimately, they became quite attached and sympathetic, pleading with her to discard the male attire she wore, behavior that was officially profane. Joan refused. Among the more driven individuals attempting to pry Joan out of the grasp of de Luxembourg was Pierre Couchon, the Bishop of Beauvais. Couchon was a former dean of the University of Paris, a chaplain to the Duke of Burgundy, as well as an ambitious and calculating high-ranking cleric. Compagne was in the diocese of Beauvais, and Couchon reasoned that any ecclesiastical proceeding should be handled by himself. Couchon also understood that whoever succeeded in convicting and punishing Joan would establish himself prominently in the French Roman Catholic hierarchy. Couchon additionally had a personal axe to grind, as it was Joan's incursion into Reims and the territory around Beauvais that had chased pro-English figures like Couchon out of the area. For the moment, he had relocated to Rouen, which was also the location of the administration of the English occupiers. In September of 1430, Jean de Luxembourg's aunt, the Demoiselle of Luxembourg, died, significant in that she possessed a large estate and great influence over her nephew. As she sympathized with Joan of Arc, it would have been difficult for John to relinquish Joan to especially the English. But now with his influential relative out of the way, Jean was ready to make a deal. As the ruler of Normandy, the Duke of Bedford had the ability to impose taxes on the region. This sum was spent on orchestrating Joan's trial and purchasing her from Burgundian captivity. Hearing rumors of such a transaction, Joan attempted to escape from her rooftop cell in the keep of de Luxembourg's fortress at Beaurevoir. From an estimated 70 feet in the air, Joan attempted to tie together pieces of bedding and cloth. 
during the process these tore, sending her to the completely uncushioned ground below. Most likely unconscious for two days, she eventually regained her vitality. Possibly her escape was actually a suicide attempt, but to admit such an inclination was again a grave blasphemy. In November, Jean de Luxembourg received his 10,000 leave ransom, and Joan was officially turned over to the English. From Beau-Rivoir, she was led to the location of her trial in a deliberately slow, six-week procession through territory controlled by Burgundy, and then England. At the head of a military column, under considerable English guard, no longer in armor, but in shackles, upon a horse, or standing in a wagon, Joan was continually spat upon and jeered by the local population. In this region, she was considered a failed, unmasked witch and a defeated disgrace, a deliberate depiction the English specifically wanted to implement as a warning to others wishing to defy their authority. She was transported far from any territory, potentially sympathetic enough to source a rescue, eventually reaching the city of Rouen, the second most populated in France, on December 23, 1430. Joan was confined to the newly renovated Beauvriel Castle, expanded after Henry V captured the city in 1419 after a lengthy siege. Content to starve out Rouen's defenders rather than launching a potentially costly attempt to scale the city's defenses, the English waited for years to achieve this aim, 20% of the local population starving in the process. They then built an extension to the forbidding structure overlooking the city. Joan was kept in a cell only a few steps from the courtyard of this fortress. Always in leg irons, she was also confined to her bed at night with two additional sets of chains and more irons lashed to a wooden timber six feet long. Her jailers were a half dozen common thugs who mocked her and repeatedly told her to prepare to burn as a witch. She left her cell only to be able to use a crude latrine which had a hole in the floor that led directly to the castle moat. Officially confined as a prisoner of the church, Joan was in actuality imprisoned in an English fortress garrisoned by English soldiers, the entire process paid for with English funding. The first phase of Joan's trial was to assemble a cast of 60 assessors who would observe the proceedings. These were mostly Dominican priests recruited from the University of Paris and with the Catholic Church-sponsored Inquisition already prevalent throughout Europe, such a proceeding would be familiar territory. Most of these official observers would have not dared refuse such an appointment, knowing that to do so would incur the wrath of the senior church officials like Couchon who were controlling the proceeding. To handle Joan's inquiry, Pierre Couchon appointed a familiar figure, John de Estevet, formerly a promoter or inquisition prosecutor at Beauvais. De Estevet was a nasty zealot who routinely referred to Joan as a whore, despite the official certification of Joan as a virgin, even by her French and English captors at the beginning of her confinement at Rouen. Couchant also sent covert investigators to the various cities and towns where Joan spent her youth or fought in battle, hoping to collect tales of immorality or blasphemy. When these agents returned with nothing of substance, Couchant remonstrated them and withheld their pay. He also schemed to have a local priest ingratiate himself with Joan by pretending to be from where she grew up and visiting her in prison with news from her hometown. Eventually, he gained her confidence and became her confessor, with the confederate always listening through a peephole from a hidden enclosure. When this failed to extract anything incriminating, 
The priest then urged Joan to be defiant and caustic, exactly the opposite of the demeanor that might gain sympathy from her examiners. Joan's first appearance before the court was held on February 21, 1431. This examination took place in the fortress's chapel, a short distance from her cell. Still dressed in clothing she had worn since her arrival and having spent months poorly fed in a freezing cell with virtually no natural illumination, she presented a weakened and pale demeanor. Couchon started by officially explaining to Joan because of allegations she had been summoned to submit to interrogations regarding faith and other factual matters. Initially, she was asked simple questions about her birthplace and early life. The proceeding was attended by at least 40 of the examiners and eventually moved to the Great Hall at Bouvreel, large enough to hold 70 officials as well as additional spectators. Frequently, the trial became chaotic, with inquisitors speaking over and interrupting each other, most likely a deliberate attempt to confuse and intimidate her. Much of the contention between Joan and these officials concerned the source and specifics of the voices that she claimed were behind her motivation. She also repeatedly refused to swear an oath, as she maintained there were many topics she would refuse to discuss, specifically what her voices told her and who specifically advised her to wear men's clothes. To the last question, she responded by stating that this behavior was demanded by God himself. Various philosophical traps were laid along the way. Joan was asked whether she knew if she was in God's grace. It was a seemingly no-win situation. Answer yes, and Joan would presume to know something that church doctrine prohibited as seriously blasphemous. Answer no, and she would provide an admission to being sinful. Instead, she resorted to the often quoted, If I am not, may God put me there, and if I am, may God so keep me. I should be the saddest creature in the world if I knew I were not in his grace. Further discussion of the angels and the voices that Joan perceived displayed skillful responses that deprived Couchon of the humiliating show trial he desired to display before the packed gallery of prominent dignitaries who observed the proceedings. The spectacle was so embarrassing that Couchon decided that it would proceed in Joan's cell in front of only a handful of his most loyal supporters. For a week, from March 10th until March 17th, Couchon and others interrogated her nine times. At the conclusion of this process, the tribunal then spent much of April formulating the exact charges against Joan, initially 70 in all, and eventually reduced to 12 by D'Estevet. Fundamentally, the assessors would have to determine whether Joan's behavior and outlook were, quote, contrary to orthodox faith or suspect with regard to holy writ, opposed to the decrees of the Holy Roman Church and the canonical sanctions, scandalous, rash, noxious to the public weal, injurious, enveloped in crimes, contrary to good customs, and in every respect offensive, unquote. Each official was to respond in writing without the ability to officially recuse. Much of what was alleged was that Joan was mistaken and that her angels were actually demonic influences and that donning men's clothes and sleeping among men without the company of other women was promiscuous behavior. Joan's month was also rendered even worse when she became quite sick, possibly from some fish sent by Couchon personally. The 12 articles of condemnation 
were forwarded to the University of Paris Theology Department for review. They unanimously responded that, among other things, Jones' beliefs were evil and outside the faith. By receiving the Eucharist while dressed as a man and by asserting that she would enter paradise regardless of her captor's judgment was a presumptuous and rash assertion and a pernicious lie. On May 23rd, in her cell, Joan was subjected to an official attempt to get her to repent her testimony and to understand the great peril she faced. On the next day, she was dragged in an ox cart to a public spectacle in a church cemetery in which two platforms were erected, one for the clerics in charge of inquiry and one for Joan. After a lengthy harangue which documented evidence of her evil and wicked actions and beliefs, she was asked to sign a document of abjuration, an official acknowledgment that she would abandon her previous transgressions and renounce her statements concerning the voices that compelled her. If she admitted the voices were a fabrication, she would receive a life sentence, but her life would be spared. If she did not, she was threatened with immediate burning at the stake. On her way to the spectacle, Couchard had her conveyed through the public square of Rouen, where a tall stake, surrounded by flammable wood, was already in place. Under this pressure, she agreed to sign, much to the chagrin of the local population and the English hierarchy, but most likely the crafty Couchard was playing a longer game. Under ecclesiastic doctrine, only a relapsed heretic could be condemned to burning at the stake. The English wanted this form of execution to demonstrate that Joan was nothing more than a common witch with no divine powers. As a result of her abjuration, Joan agreed to shed men's clothing and wear a dress, and she complied with this demand upon returning to her cell. This concession did not last long. Within three days, Couchard was made aware that Joan had reneged on her promise to wear only women's clothing and that she had resumed wearing men's clothes. Upon confronting her, she defiantly claimed her voices told her that agreeing to the abjuration was damning her soul to save her mortal self. She would rather die than endure additional suffering. For centuries, history has debated the sudden turnabout in Joan's attitude and situation. Whether her jailers stripped her of her dress and virtually forced her to put on men's clothing to go to the latrine, whether someone an English lord or a jailer attempted to or actually raped her, or whether Couchard claimed actions and statements falsely to obtain the sentence he and the English desired remains the subject of ongoing speculation. On Wednesday, May 30, 1431, a priest and a Dominican friar were sent to Joan's cell to inform her that she was to be burned at the stake. Understandably, she lost her composure, but subsequently, when Couchard came to her cell, she specifically blamed him and said she would appeal to God to punish him, not exactly the remarks of a cowed and submissive penitent. Although church doctrine did not allow the administration of sacraments to a heretic, Couchard permitted her confessor to hear her confession and allow her to receive communion. Quickly afterwards, Joan was turned over to the local secular authorities and transported in a cart to the market square. Upwards of 800 armed English soldiers guaranteed that any rescue was impossible. A mob of an estimated 10,000 residents of the city elbowed their way into the vicinity, intent on witnessing the execution. Several platforms were constructed to provide better vantage points for ecclesiastic and prestigious officials, including one that was reserved for the church official who would deliver a final sermon that Joan was forced to endure. 
This tirade concluded with the words, quote, We cast you off, separate, and abandon you, unquote. Joan was dragged to the fourth and highest platform and chained and bound to the stake by the official executioner. Later, he would complain that the stake was so unusually high he could not apply the customary rope around the victim's neck to employ strangulation, a merciful alternative to actual burning. The condemned was wearing a gray sleeveless garment that stretched below her knees. On her head, a crude crown with the words heretic, relapse, apostate, idolater. Around her neck hung a small wooden crucifix fashioned for her at the last moment. A sympathetic priest, assigned to comfort her in her last minutes, returned to her vicinity with a tall crucifix that he had retrieved from a nearby church. Joan shouted to him, the din from the boisterous crowd rising with each passing minute. Hold it before my eyes so I can see it until the last. The flame was lit because she was deliberately placed high above the crowd on a specially devised taller plaster column for maximum visibility, she would not be granted a merciful quick death from smoke inhalation. Instead, she would literally burn. But if Couchon thought that this kind of slow death would elicit a scream of repentance, he was wrong. Above the din, she remained defiant. My voices did come from God, and everything I have done was by God's order. As the flames began to consume her garment and her body itself, Joan shouted the word Jesus several times in a voice audible throughout the square. Finally, her head fell sideways. Her agony concluded. Even in death, Joan's punishment was choreographed. The fire was deliberately diminished and pulled back so that Joan, naked, burnt, and clearly dead, was visible to all present. Another reminder from the English that this was nothing more than a witch deserving punishment. Instead, many in the crowd were overcome with doubt and emotion, thinking that they had just witnessed a terrible transgression. To ensure nothing remained, the fire was rekindled, further reducing what was left. Legend has it that even after a third attempt, the executioner was unable to burn Joan's heart. Not wanting to preserve any relics, he gathered it up with the rest of the ashes and, as directed, tossed Joan's remains into the Seine. Pierre Couchon's orchestration of Joan's trial and execution did grant him favor among the English. He was eventually paid a stunning 10,000 leave for his supervision, mostly from the king's treasury. He became a trusted diplomat for the English, an intermediary who attempted to maintain the relationship between the English and the Burgundians. But even in this prominent role, Couchon must have sensed that his involvement with Joan of Arc might eventually have negative consequences. Within six months after Joan's death, the transcript of her trial, completed under the direct supervision of Couchon, was compiled and released officially with the bishop's seal. This document contained a hastily appended affidavit providing testimony from church officials present during Joan's last days. They swore that she had renounced her voices as emanating from the devil, and it was these voices that told her to resume wearing men's clothes, thus violating her abjuration and further justifying her execution. Couchon had distributed a similar message to churches all over France, demanding that this information be read from the pulpit. Although Couchon initially hoped to be named Bishop of Rouen, he eventually had to settle for a similar appointment at Lisieux, a coastal town in Normandy firmly under control of the English. 
he appeared prominently at the official coronation of Henry VI in Paris on December 16, 1431. This event meant to capitalize on the demise of Joan of Arc and to restore momentum to the English military attempt to subjugate France. While this failed, Henry remained the only British monarch to be officially crowned as King of France, in this case as Henri II. Couchon probably sensed that the English might eventually lose their influence over France. After several military reversals in 1435, he officially represented the English government at the Congress of Arras, an attempt to bring about a diplomatic conclusion to the 100 Years' War. When the English refused to relinquish Henry VI's right to the French throne, the English delegation withdrew, allowing Charles VII to reach an agreement with the Burgundians, who renounced their alliance with the English. As this occurred, the Duke of Bedford, the authority behind the English throne, suddenly died at Rouen. Within two years, the French had retaken Paris and regained control over much of the country. They steadily continued to push the English out of the remainder of its occupied territory, recapturing Rouen in 1449 and forcing the surrender of Bordeaux, the last city under English control, in 1453. By then, English domestic politics had devolved into the chaos that eventually resulted in the War of the Roses. Pierre Couchon did not live to observe these developments. He died of a heart attack in December of 1442 still enjoying prominence and comfort under the protection of the English. Others who participated in the persecution of Joan of Arc were not as fortunate. John de Estevet, essentially Joan's prosecutor and the individual who organized her formal indictment, was found dead in 1438, beaten and tossed into Rouen's open sewer. Nicholas Meady, another prominent prelate, trial examiner, and the orator who delivered the public sermon preceding Joan's execution died painfully of leprosy in 1434, an affliction many perceived as divine retribution. English official hostility to Joan derived from their political perspective that Charles VII's coronation was illegitimate because he benefited from the actions of an individual who the Catholic Church had legally pronounced a heretic. Their ability to persuade Couchon and other church officials to convict and execute Joan meant that this act was the responsibility of the Catholic Church and not the English. Even before the English were driven out of France, public attitudes and Charles VII's own concern that in the eyes of the Pope his rule might be deemed illegitimate necessitated a formal examination of the entire affair. As early as 1450, the king appointed a French cardinal to interview participants in Joan's trial. Although the process was cumbersome and Byzantine, in 1455, Pope Calixtus III officially ordered several French bishops, including the Bishop of Paris, to convene an official inquiry into the matter. Although her father had died only two years after her execution, Joan's mother was the first individual to appear before this tribunal, reading a statement requesting justice for her daughter, an official repudiation of such a, quote, scornful action towards the rulers and the people, unquote. Dozens of Joan's contemporaries, including Dunois, the Duke of Alençon, and even her squire, Jean de Hollande, were deposed. Sentiment had so turned in Joan's favor that the relatives and heirs of Pierre Couchon felt it necessary to send a letter to this official body repudiating their relatives' conduct and denying any responsibility. On July 7, 1456, the church officials involved, 
deliberately convened in Rouen's Great Hall and issued a statement officially nullifying the proceedings condemning Joan. This lengthy document was officially read in the cemetery where Joan was forced to abjure, as well as the market square where Joan was burned. Finally, it was decreed that a cross be erected at this site in her perpetual memory, a memorial that still stands today. Pope Calixtus took the additional step of formally excommunicating Pierre Couchon. Originally buried in a magnificent tomb that he paid for, today Couchon's remains repose in an unmarked grave in the marble floor near the altar of St. Peter's Church in Lisieux. By contrast, Joan of Arc is a literal symbol of French nationalism, faith, and history. Canonized in 1920, she is memorialized with hundreds of magnificent statues across France, especially in places relevant to her life, including Paris, Chinon, Reims, and Orléans. Joan is also enshrined in New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., New Orleans, Montreal, and even Melbourne, Australia. Her life has been the subject of countless books, paintings, and dramatic presentations composed by elements as disparate as George Bernard Shaw and Otto Preminger. One of these dramas contains prescient dialogue about Joan and her legacy. After observing her execution, the Earl of Warwick, her jailer and warden at the fortress at Beauvriel, is said to have remarked, We made a lark into a giant bird who will travel the skies of the world long after our names are cursed and forgotten. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Joan of Arc. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Joan of Arc, Her Story by Regine Pernou. Joan of Arc, A Life Transfigured by Catherine Harrison. And Joan of Arc, A History by Helen Castor. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.